this is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the murder of seven-year-old Nancy Johnson. When I wrote Cold Case Vancouver in 2015, I'd linked together the murders of three seven-year-old girls. The first was Nancy Johnson. She was murdered in November 1967. Almost exactly two years later, seven-year-old Evangeline Arzacon was abducted on the way home from her Vancouver school. And two years after that, in 1971, Tanya Bush, also seven, was kidnapped on the way to her Vancouver school. The bodies of the three little girls were found in close proximity to each other in Surrey, BC, and evidence at the time indicated that they may have been victims of a serial killer. Evangeline and Tanya's stories are covered in episodes 26 and 27 of Cold Case Canada. After I wrote Cold Case Vancouver, I was able to get a copy of the inquest into Nancy's death. This has provided a lot of information that I didn't have access to for the book. As well, new information has come forward that could possibly tie Nancy's murder in with the 1976 unsolved murder of Teresa Hildebrandt, a 15-year-old from Aldergrove, B.C., Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Cloverdale is part of Surrey, British Columbia, and while it's only about 40 kilometres from Vancouver, it still has a small town feel, enough farmland to give it a country feel, and it's most famous for its rodeo, held there every May. In the 1960s, the Johnsons grew cucumbers and raised chickens and a couple of cows on their five-acre property on 78th Avenue. Irvin Johnson was a carpenter in the maintenance department at the Surrey School Board and had gradually added on to the rambling farmhouse as his family grew. In 1967, he and Shirley had seven sons and three daughters, ranging in age from six months to 16 years. Seven-year-old Nancy was the middle in age of the three girls. She was a happy little girl with short dark hair. She loved to play with the dolls, play tag or hide and seek with her brothers and sisters. And she loved to be outdoors. On November 6th, 1967, the boisterous Johnson family had finished dinner and around 6pm, several of the kids were playing in the house. This is Mary, who was nine. What do you remember of that night? That night, I remember we were going to play hide-and-go-seek. I remember standing in the bathroom with George and Margaret and Ed saying, why isn't she playing with us? Where is she? And then we went to Mom and Dad. The family ate all over the house. The younger children in their bedroom, the older boys ate in the living room, and the parents ate in the kitchen. Nancy ate dinner somewhere between 4.45 and 5.15. The last time Shirley remembers seeing her was just after she'd eaten. She thought this would have been around 5.30. Shirley told the inquest that Nancy had asked to have her hair washed, 
and Shirley told her she would do that as soon as she'd fed Irvin. In Cold Case Vancouver, I wrote that the last time Nancy was seen was when she went out to get the newspaper from the mailbox at the end of the driveway. This detail came from early newspaper reports, quoting both parents, Irvin and Shirley Johnson. Mary told me that it was unlikely that Nancy would go out in the pitch dark to pick up the paper. She would have been too scared. And in the inquest, there is no mention of this. Shirley Johnson says that she first noticed that Nancy was missing when she saw that she was the only one of the kids who hadn't eaten dessert. Thinking she was hiding, the Johnsons searched all over the house for Nancy, in the closets, under the beds, and in the bathroom. When they couldn't find her inside, the older boys were sent out with their flashlights to search the yard. Shirley phoned their neighbours to see if Nancy had gone to play at a friend's place. But she wasn't hopeful. As she told the inquest later, Nancy wasn't the type to wander. She wouldn't even go to school alone. She always waited for one of the others. It was a dark November night, and one by one, the neighbours told them that they hadn't seen Nancy that day. At 6.45pm, Irvin Johnson phoned the Surrey RCMP. Harry Deboer, the Johnson's 13-year-old neighbour, said he delivered the Johnson's newspaper at 5.10pm. He said he didn't see anything unusual. The Johnson's dog was tied up outside, but no one remembered hearing it bark. When Irvin Johnson was asked about this at the inquest, he said that he'd only had the dog for a few months and it may not have been able to tell the difference between a stranger and a family member going through the yard. The Monumental Scandals Tour by Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours digs into the dirty foundations of the city's most iconic heritage buildings. There's a sensational murder behind the old Vancouver courthouse, backroom deals at the Hotel Vancouver, salacious dances at the old Orpheum Theatre, and the chief of police who liked his gambling bribes delivered in paper bags. This walking tour includes a private look inside the Marine Building, an Art Deco masterpiece built by a rum runner during American Prohibition. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% off your booking by using the code COLDCASE. The once rural area has grown into a bedroom community for Vancouver. Large modern houses line 78th Avenue, where the Johnsons had their cucumber farm and what was then a dirt road. Behind the hilly property were fields and a peat bog, which had been used for duck hunting. Now much of that land belongs to the Surrey Golf Course, which opened in 1971. On the other side of the golf course is Fry's Corner, the spot where another unsolved murder victim, 22-year-old Debbie Rose abandoned car, would be found eight years later. In less than two hours after the Johnsons had reported Nancy missing, the RCMP had mobilised tracker dogs and more than 100 nearby residents and volunteers had joined in to help with the search. At 8pm, Constable Marshall and his police dog found two stockings beside a wire fence near the bush at the back of the property. Shirley confirmed that the stockings belonged to Nancy. It started to rain heavily just after midnight and police called off the search at 1am. The Johnsons said they couldn't sleep and they kept searching through the night. Joe Davies, Nancy's maternal grandfather, 
said early that morning he'd taken his daughter, son-in-law Irwin, and a grandson to pick up newspapers and help deliver them. It seemed a strange thing to do with a missing child. But when Joe returned to the Johnsons' house just after 7am, he started to search on his own. At 7.30am, he found a tiny pair of shoes between a pile of wood and a fence on the next-door neighbour's property. He said they looked like they'd been placed there and no attempt had been made to hide them. Not knowing who they belonged to, he picked them up and brought them up to the house. At 8am, a searcher found Nancy's tiny body lying face down in a marshy bush area by a creek, just a third of a kilometre from the Johnson home. The white blouse and blue skirt she wore was disarranged, but fortunately she'd not been sexually assaulted. Cause of death was manual strangulation with multiple lacerations and abrasions. It was never determined whether Nancy had been killed where she was found or somewhere else. Because it was pitch dark and raining, and her body covered with twigs, it was also impossible to know whether searchers had missed her or whether she'd been put there later, after the search had been called off for the night. Nancy's stomach was full. This meant that her death occurred within an hour after she ate her dinner. Mary vividly remembers the black cars that came for her little sister's body the following day. Do you remember the day that she was found? What was that like at the house? All I remember is my mom asking me not to let the kids look out the window because I guess they'd found her. But of course, being nine, I wanted to see why we weren't supposed to look out the window too. So I looked. They had one of those gurney things with a body on it, pulling it up the driveway. And there was like black cars all in the driveway and everything. The file of newspaper clippings about Nancy Johnson's murder is thin, but even so... The frustration felt by the RCMP officers comes through clearly. RCMP Inspector W.R. Morrison told reporters that the investigation had been hampered because the murderer's tracks were obliterated by the dozens of police and searchers who combed the marshy bushland looking for Nancy. Morrison questioned neighbours in an effort to find out her last movements. He told reporters, We haven't come up with anything so far. We have absolutely no leads. The inquest was held on February 12, 1968, just over three months after Nancy's death. Corporal Ron Davies was sworn in to testify. He showed aerial photos of the Johnson property and told the court that 15 RCMP investigators had looked into the murder. They had talked to 650 people and personally visited 152 homes in the area. He said, we have done numerous other investigations, everything that we could possibly think of, and to this date, this crime has not been solved by our detachment. Before the murder, Margaret Six, Nancy Seven and Mary Nine had always been referred to as just the three girls. After Nancy died, they became the four little ones. Nancy was one of 34 students in Eleanor Johnson's class at the William Watson Elementary School. Eleanor told reporters that Nancy was a pretty little girl, happy and eager to please. Patty Hart was in Nancy's grade two class. I had just turned seven in October, and I'll never forget that morning, never, because 
it was so traumatic. And then everything changed for me after that because I, I was the oldest in my family and I walked to school alone. And right away it was, you don't look anybody, you don't talk to anybody. And so it was sort of this fear all the time and just what an impact it had on our community. You know what I mean? When you're little, you're not imagining that there's that kind of horror out there. And that's mm. the first time in my life I remember feeling afraid. And then I just remember hearing my mom tell me that that was the rumor about the brother. And he was in, I want to say Woodlands, but it could have been Riverview. Our community was so tiny. So for something like this to happen, is that person still around? And then, like I said, the rumor... And then I'm thinking, well, do you think the parents would have tried to cover it up? I went to the Cloverdale Parish with my family, and her family did too. And it was a large family. I remember that. Very Catholic. And I remember after she died, because we were, of course, still going to Mass every Sunday, and you knew as soon as you walked in, it's like, there they are in that pew, that mm -hmm. family that lost their little girl, and then... I guess they quit going. Shirley, now 38, gave birth to another little boy shortly after Nancy's death. The baby only lived for four days. It was a terrible blow for Shirley, a devout Catholic. She went to the priest so that he could grant her absolution to stop having children. He said, no, this is Mary. Just trying to get a picture of what you remember of Nancy. Like, can you tell me what you remember of her, what she was like? She was probably a lot like all three of us when she was younger, which was quiet. I remember her being picked on in school a couple of times for, for being quiet and not wearing. Because with all those kids, we didn't always have the best of clothes, right? We got a lot of hand-me-downs from the Catholic Church. And I remember kids picking on her. There was this cupboard in the back of William Watson School. And I'd find her under there crying and some kids picking on her. How did you as a family handle Nancy's death? Did you talk about it at all? Or no. Did you do, no. Never. 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 It was never brought up. My mom, she had a small shrine in her closet. She had a wreath from Nancy's funeral. She had some of her clothes hanging there. She had a cross above the closet. But it was nothing we ever talked about. You left the church not long after a murder, too, didn't you? She always told us all it was because she'd lost Stephen, the baby. And she said the Pope wouldn't give her absolution to, or let her use birth control, so she quit the church. I really don't believe that reason. Why do you think she left the church? I think the guilt of what she was covering up. The police quickly focused their investigation on the family, accusing the older brothers and even Shirley herself. I talked to Neil Boyd for my book Cold Case Vancouver in 2015. At that time, he was the director of the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. Boyd told me it's not surprising that police investigations always start with a family. Historically, victims are murdered by family members for money or in the heat of passion by jealous lovers, or by friends or work colleagues, for some grievance that's either real or imagined. The motive is usually easily detected, and the killer often leaves a trail of evidence behind. Most killings take place among people who know each other very well. About 80 to 90% of all killings fall into that category. The reality is that most often a child is killed by a family member, most often father, second mother, third 
siblings. That's more common than a predatory attack by a stranger. It's understandable that police might have thought that as something that was more logical. Unbelievably, after Nancy's death, the farm became a kind of morbid tourist attraction. The Johnsons were horrified when strangers would just appear on their property, even park in their driveway. About two years after her murder, Irvin built a house in Aldgrove and moved his family there. Peter was 13 at the time of Nancy's murder, the third oldest son. Mary said he bullied and molested her from the time she was a small child. Well, tell me about Peter. I never liked him. I always was somewhat afraid of him. My mom always made me do things with him. Like He tried to teach me how to drive a couple of times, and I didn't want to go with him alone in the car to drive with him. But I remember always just locking myself in the bathroom, and the way my dad had built the sink, I could wedge myself between the sink and the door and not let him in or his friends in. From what you know of Peter, do you think he was capable of murdering her? Yeah. And do you think your mother is capable of covering it up? I think she could have. And I think she might have. To me, if it wasn't in the family, why wouldn't everybody want it solved? Why wouldn't my mom and dad be phoning and wanting to know how it's coming or if they have anybody? My feeling was always that my brother was the one that killed him. And the police always thought it was my mom. My mom probably did know what was going on. When Peter finished school, he worked in the oil fields in Fort St. John, coming home to Aldergrove often. He drove a blue Pontiac Firebird, and Mary remembers a couple of different girlfriends that he dated from Aldergrove. Are you planning a wedding? Then you're likely in the market for an engagement ring and wedding band that you'll be proud to wear for decades. Erin Haken is an accomplished Vancouver jewellery designer and she has a range of gorgeous rings in stock. But what Erin most loves to do is to work with you and your partner to create your own uniquely designed ring. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com, and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. In 1976, Nancy's younger sister Margaret was 15 and in grade 8. She was close friends with Teresa Hildebrand and their little brothers played together. I wasn't able to connect with anyone in Teresa's family, but a story in the Abbotsford News in 2015 described her as energetic and feisty, who did well in school and loved music, animals and her family. Teresa loved to play the piano, and some of her favourite songs were from the Bee Gees and the Beatles. According to the article, Teresa had once run off after a fight with her father. She'd gone to meet a boyfriend, and she was found quite quickly. So when she didn't show up for a family dinner on the Victoria Long Weekend in 1976, with her two brothers and sister, parents and grandparents, her family knew that there was something wrong. Teresa's older brother had seen her earlier that day with her boyfriend in Langley, across from the A&W. She told him they'd hitchhiked there from Abbotsford, the Hildebrands called police. And even though she hadn't taken any of her favourite things with her or packed any extra clothes, police wrote off her disappearance as a runaway. They didn't search for her. They didn't put notices in the media. 
there was nothing done to find her. The Abbotsford News article mentions that Teresa's boyfriend was ruled out as a suspect in her disappearance, but it leaves way more questions than answers. Who was her boyfriend and how was he cleared? Where did they go after they left Langley? When did they part company? Was Teresa picked up by someone? Did she hitchhike? Who was the last person to see her? Teresa's brother and sister told the Abbotsford News reporter that they hadn't been told anything about the investigation. In 1980, four years after Teresa went missing, her family received devastating news. Police called and told them that human remains had been found by some kids in a shallow grave in a gully near Downs and Mount Lehman Roads. They'd also found a blue jacket and a heavy bracelet, items that Teresa was wearing when she was last seen. Several days later, dental records confirmed the remains were Teresa's. She had died from blunt force trauma to the head. Teresa's murder was linked to two other murders. 11-year-old Catherine Mary Herbert, who went missing in September 1975 from Abbotsford, and Monica Jack, 12, who went missing while riding her bike near Merritt in 1978. Monica's remains wouldn't be found for another 17 years. Police had always had Gary Taylor Handlin on their radar, and in 2014, the RCMP launched an undercover operation that targeted Handlin. At the time, he was running a small renovation business and living with a woman in the central Ontario town of Minden. He was then 67. It was a Mr. Big operation, a controversial procedure that the RCMP have used since the early 1990s to either charge or clear suspects in major cold cases. During the undercover operation, Hanlon received $12,000 and multiple perks for the illegal operations he thought he was carrying out, everything from smuggling cigarettes to loan sharking. At the end of 10 months, Hanlon was introduced to the crime boss. Mr. Big told him that police were investigating him for old murders and he needed Hanlon to give him the details so that he could help him beat the charges. Hanlon was happy to do so. He confessed to the murders of Monica Jack and Catherine Mary Herbert, but he denied any knowledge of ever meeting Teresa Hildebrandt. The Hildebrandt's home was on Sun Valley Crescent between Bradner and Ross Road. The Johnsons lived on Ross Road. This is Mary. It always has bothered me, too, that we moved to Aldergrove and then that Hildebrand girl went missing. And she was a friend of my sister. It just seems odd that we moved to Aldergrove, she lives on the next street, and she dies. Yeah, it's a big coincidence, isn't it? Isn't it? It's huge. Her remains were found four years later. Not I know that spot. So Everybody knew that area. It must have been pretty remote. It was. Now. We all rode bikes. We would ride our bikes all the way into Abbotsford from Aldergrove. And then I wonder, is there other people where he lived that he abused? Where he had journeyed off to, like in his adult years? What was he doing when he was working in these other towns? Far did it go? Nancy Johnson's murder was investigated by the Surrey RCMP. Teresa Hildebrandt's murder was a Masqui police investigation. Masqui police was amalgamated into Abbotsford police in 1995. They would have operated in silos back then, and it's quite likely that Peter was never considered 
as a person of interest in Theresa Hildebrand's disappearance or murder. And to be clear, I have no evidence linking him to either Theresa's or Nancy's murders. Peter died in a car accident on Halloween night in 1978, two years after Theresa went missing. Here's Mary. My mum always, for some reason, favoured Peter. And none of us could figure out why. Even when he died, they went to Fort St. John and they got his ashes. My mum kept his ashes in the drawer of her dresser. They finally took them to Decca Lake and spread them on Decca Lake. And none of us could figure out why, because they sold the cabin at Decca Lake right after Peter died, because they said it reminded him too much, the cabin too much of him. I don't know why, because we all built it. And then they put his ashes in the lake. And when my mom and dad died, they wanted their ashes on the lake. Where was Nancy buried? Valley View in Surrey, where all the other Johnsons are buried, grandmas and grandpas. The police never knew about the abuse until I was 36. I finally went to the police and told them about it. But then that caused a huge controversy in my family, and my parents were really mad at me. Because the police re-looked into the case and went back to talk to my mom and dad. And then my parents somewhat disowned me at that point for reopening the case. Was he dead by then? Who, Peter? Peter, yeah. Oh, yeah, he was dead by then, yep. What did you hope to accomplish by going to the police about it after all that time? She was a person and that it mattered, that there was abuse in the house. And my mom and dad were alive, so they would have been able to finally say something if it was true. About Peter? Yeah, if it was Peter, why not just say it at that point? Um, He's dead, he's gone, right? But then my mom, I guess, could have been charged for covering it up. Maybe that's why we didn't. Did they talk to you about it at all? No. And then I was written out of their will. Oh, my God, Mary, that's awful. I'm so sorry. That must have really hurt. Yeah, it was pretty hard. That must have been so traumatic for you. Has that affected your life? I think everything did. Being molested and her murder. and This has haunted me my whole life. Irvin retired after 30 years with the Surrey School Board, and he and Shirley moved to Lamont, Alberta, to be closer to Margaret's growing young family. In 1998, Shirley and Irvin Johnson were killed in a car accident when a driver made an illegal left-hand turn in front of them. The couple were on their way to the Banff National Park to celebrate their 48th wedding anniversary. Mary says her parents had requested to be cremated and had their ashes scattered in the lake where Peters had been 20 years before. But their children had other plans for them. What we did was we null and voided there being ashes on the lake and we buried them in the cemetery with Nancy. My mom and dad were Catholic, so my mom really didn't believe in cremation. Quite surprising for us that they wanted to be cremated. So to me, that could have just been something she felt she wasn't going to have in any way because of what she'd done in life. I don't know. Maybe she just felt that she had done wrong and that she would never be worthy of heaven. In most unsolved murder cases that I've written and podcasted about, the biggest complaint from the families is that they are rarely, if ever, contacted by police after the initial investigation. But the police did not stop working on Nancy's case. Every year for almost half a century, police would re-interview the family even after the parents and three brothers had died. Margaret, Nancy's younger sister, finally asked them to stop. When I interviewed Margaret in 2015 for Cold Case Vancouver, she told me that she had nothing more to say to the police 
that she thought they'd got it wrong from the beginning and should have been looking outside the family. I didn't re-interview Margaret for this podcast, and I should mention that at no time during our original interview did she ever mention anything about abuse in the family. I first started talking to Mary about doing a podcast about Nancy's murder in August 2021. I also sent her a copy of the inquest into her sister's death. When I spoke to her after she'd read the inquest, I could tell that she was conflicted. You know, when I read that inquest, there was a lot of stuff in that that really shocked me and opened my eyes. I didn't realize the police had made up so much stuff that they told me. And I think it was to sway me to say things about my mom. What did they make up? From reading the inquest, it sounds like she had her clothes on. They told me that her clothes were folded neatly by her body. That's why they knew it was somebody that really cared about her and probably loved her. So that, to me, really swayed me to think, well, it had to be somebody she knew. So all those years I thought that, and then it wasn't even true. The police told me that it was a small pair of hands that strangled her. They could tell by the marks on her neck. That's why they suspected my mom. Then they told me how long it would take to strangle someone, so it was somebody that really needed to strangle her. And the police said that there was drag marks under the fence to go where they put her. They told me that that there was drag marks on the dirt. So they said they couldn't get her under the fence. So they, somebody obviously dragged her under the fence. So that's why, again, they thought it was my mom because she couldn't carry her that far. My mom did not really have a temper. She wasn't an angry person that got mad or exploded. And why was the body in our yard? If somebody else did it, why would she have been left so close to home? That's why, to me, it could have been somebody in my home. It's just all of these questions came Mm. up in my mind after I read the inquest. The police have a very hard job, but I think they would get further sometimes if they were more honest with families. Maybe they would have found out sooner from me about the abuse if they were more honest with me instead of trying to make me think it was my mother. They even came to my school and interviewed me, and all I remember doing was sitting in the little nurse's office at the end of the hallway with these two guys in their long coats. All I did was cry, and then they took me home. She was a person. Nancy was a living sister. Like, she deserves to be acknowledged in life. Why are we all just trying to pretend she didn't exist? If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much for listening to Cold Case Canada. This episode is based on a chapter in my book, Cold Case Vancouver, The City's Most Baffling Unsolved Murders. If you have any information on Nancy Johnson or Teresa Hildebrandt's murders, please call Crime Stoppers 1-800-222-8477 or go onto the website solvecrime.ca. If you'd like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website evelazarus.com or join us on the Facebook group page Cold Case Canada. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada, and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. 
Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. Podcatcher.